ideas and insights provides a rich analytical framework for thinking about some of the most pressing issues of our times. Our goal is to promote a dialogue about the common good and forge a consensus on what we owe each other as fellow human beings. Engaging, enlightening, ideas and insights offers original and bold vistas for making sense of the world. Join us weekly here on this television station. I am Badrina Thrao, your host for Ideas and Insights. Hello and welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badrina Thrao, your host for this program. In this episode, we will discuss the distressing state of democracy across the globe. According to the Economist Democracy Index 2020 report, just 23 countries comprising 8.4% of the world's population are full democracies. 52 nations comprising 41% of the world's population are flawed democracies. 35 nations are hybrid regimes and 57 countries comprising 35.6% of the world's population are authoritarian governments. Astute observers of world politics almost unanimously agree that democracy and democratic institutions across the globe are under an eclipse. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in late 2019, democratic freedoms have been curtailed the world over. In countries as disparate as the Philippines, Turkey, Hungary, Nicaragua, Poland, Brazil, Tajikistan, China, Russia, Vietnam, and Saudi Arabia, one sees the attenuation of power-sharing institutions, lack of accountability, rampant electoral malpractices, and the rising tide of corruption and cronyism. Further, barring the 23 countries that are genuine democracies, across the globe, one sees systematic attempts to squelch dissent that established democracies like the United States, India, and the United Kingdom are also not immune to these maladies, only underscores their severity. The alarming decline of democracy has garnered considerable scholarly attention. Some academics posit that democracy is going through a midlife crisis. Others, mainly from China, maintain that Western democracy, having outlived its utility, is showing signs of decay. Yet others blame populism for delivering a knockout blow to democracy. Democratic governance appears to have failed to empower people, uphold their dignity, and enhance their life chances. Professor John Keane, noted political theorist and professor of politics at the University of Sydney in Australia and at the Wissenschaftszentrum Berlin offers a seminal analysis 
of the aberrations of democracy in his latest book, The New Despotism, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. Professor Keane has spent decades tracking the trajectory of democracy across the globe and mapping the changes it has undergone in different settings. Drawing on his sustained engagement with democratic institutions, Professor Keane subverts received scholarly wisdom that depicts the dystopian anomalies of democracy as authoritarianism, populism, dictatorship, or totalitarianism. Instead, he characterizes them as the new despotism. According to Professor Keane, new despotism is a phantom democracy, a new type of pseudo-democratic government led by rulers skilled in the arts of manipulating and meddling with people's lives, marshalling their support, and winning their conformity. It operates in insidious ways by ostensibly embracing the trappings of democratic polities. Despots outwardly affirm their allegiance to the rule of law, procedures, and transparency. Yet, they excel in exploiting the law to frustrate the rule of law. How do new despotisms work? What keeps them going? Can we get rid of them? I shall explore these issues with Professor John Keane, the author of The New Despotism. Welcome to the program, Professor Keane. Thank you for joining us from far away Sydney. Thank you, Professor Rao. I'm, I'm delighted and honored to be on with you on Ideas and Insights, and I hope that um, we will be engaging and enlightening. Uh, let's begin with the title of your book, The New Despotism. Despotism is an old idea. We have seen despotism over the centuries, and you characterize developments across different nations as the new despotism. The question then is, what is new about new despotism? Well, the term despotism is uh, certainly, it certainly seems old fashioned. It hasn't been in currency for a while. It kind of petered out in usage, for example, in the United States around uh, shortly after World War II. It's an old term, which I think uh, in this book, I try to show has real advantages for making sense of a very big development uh, of our times. The rise, as you have already mentioned, the rise of a crop of regimes, Turkey, Russia, China, uh, Hungary, Vietnam, uh, the Central Asian Republics, regimes that have a definite stability about them, that have a definite threatening implications for power sharing democracy of the kind that we have valued for the past uh, generation. This old term, despotism, interestingly, was a key word that circulated during the American Revolution. 
I mean, the uprising of American colonists against the British Empire was done um, because one reason was because those um, who rose up felt that the regime of George III was despotic. Um, what did they mean? Well, I also mean a type of power which is top-down, um, that is arbitrary, that does boss and bully, but a type of power that tries to win the loyalty of its subjects, that tries to seduce them, that, that acts as if it's not repressive, that tries to produce what I call in the book voluntary servitude. That's the specific meaning of despotism, and it has been since its ancient Greek roots, um, where uh, the despotis, a despot was the head of a household, the male head of a household. So the father of the household had um, ruled effectively that household, women and children and servants and slaves, but was expected to rule um, in a way gently, kindly, uh, to win the support and the loyalty. These new regimes, which I call the new despotisms, try to do that too. They do that through a whole range of very interesting mechanisms, which I describe in this book. To repeat, they are not autocracies. So Biden likes to use this term to describe Russia, China, and so on. If autocracy means, you know, top-down rule through the fist, um, then this is a misunderstanding of how they operate. They operate in more complex ways. They're not old-fashioned tyrannies or dictatorships. They're not fascist or totalitarian regimes where the bulk of the population is afraid uh, of the governing powers, where there are mass rallies to try to uh, show the unity of the people. Um, th these regimes are different. Uh, and they're puzzling. They ought to be puzzling for us. And what I try to say in the book is that it's very important that we dig down into uh, uh, these regimes to understand, um, to, to engage in a kind of despotology, you know, to study these despotisms, to understand the mechanics of power, to understand their spirit. And what we find are pretty disturbing things. You call new despotisms, plutocracies. You say they are wealth creating and protection rackets for the rich. You call new despotism larcenous states that work in favor of the elites, which is well taken. And you also say that they also take care of petty capitalism, the small and medium enterprises, mm -hmm. in order to create the illusion that they are committed to creating a level playing field. The point, however, is that there are still millions of people in the countries that we've been discussing mired in precarity, leading desperate lives, and that does not seem to have any impact on the functioning of new despotisms. How do we understand this? 
Yes, it's a paradox, and you've put it very well, uh, Professor Rao. Uh, these are top-down systems of power. They're strong states um, that try to hide their violence, um, but they are states of great inequality of power and great inequality of wealth. Um, one way that they patch over uh, the tensions that arise um, that mask the reality that they are plutocracies, you know, with huge imbalances of wealth where governing officials uh, and uh, businesses operate hand in hand. I call this oligarchy. It's what Hungarians, uh, uh, it's the term that Hungarians use. So the great paradox is that great imbalances of wealth and power nevertheless don't produce explosions. How come? Well, one of the ways in which um, these states, these despotisms, uh, manage this great imbalance of wealth and income is uh, through uh, state spending. Uh, at least 50% of the Russian population's lives are principally dependent upon state spending of one kind or another. The uh, Chinese government uh, makes uh, much of its success in expanding uh, tertiary education, in rolling out uh, pension schemes, uh, developing something like a universal healthcare system in order to encourage people to feel that actually life is improving. And many of these despotisms are successful on that front. There is one other important um, buffer, if you like, against uh, conflicts generated by great imbalances of wealth and power in these regimes, regimes like Erdogan's Turkey or uh, Lukashenko's Belarus. And that is um, that every one of these despotisms has a middle class. Sometimes it's smaller, sometimes it's larger. In China, it's at least 300 million people. Uh, who think of themselves and statistically are middle class. And what is interesting about these middle classes, I try to show in the book, is that they are, are rather loyal to the system. Um, when they're asked whether they want open, free and fair elections, they say no. Uh, do they think that um, American style liberal democracy is the way forward? They say no. Um, so they're comfortable in their privileges. They are uh, skilled at grumbling about abuses of power, but they keep their heads down. Quiet loyalty is, um, is the principle of these new despotisms. Which brings me to an interesting point you raise in the book. You argue that voluntary servitude is the linchpin of new despotism. You further say that quiet subservience is the oxygen of new despots. How does this work? What's voluntary servitude and why do people submit to this phenomenon? Once again, it's a very complex set of, um, of methods that they use. One of the um, key methods and a point that I emphasize uh, in some detail in the book is that these despotisms 
are smart forms of rule. I mean, those who rule these regimes at all levels are very well aware that um, if large numbers of people withdraw their consent, then the regime can tumble like a house of cards. The rulers understand that ultimately power only works, not because it's a rabbit's foot or a magic charm. Power only works when people consent to it. And so these regimes um, develop methods, often skillful methods of winning the loyalty of the public. How do they do it? For instance, all of these new despotisms uh, depend upon opinion polling. Um, that's true in China, that's true in Russia. That is, those who rule are mindful of public opinion uh, trends. All of them um, experiment with public forums. Uh, for example, in the Emirates, there are happiness uh, forums. Um, or they have, as in Singapore, they have outreach sessions. Um, and all of them use digital network media as early warning devices. Uh, they try, the rulers try to communicate with, with people. And of course, they crack down on dissenters. That's a feature of their top-down uh, power quality. But they try to be smart. They try to learn. They try, the rulers uh, try to learn how to govern efficiently and effectively. And the, when this works, this produces, yes, um, a kind of voluntary servitude. Um, it's a play on words, of course, to describe the way that millions of people in these regimes are willing to go along uh, with the regime. They don't publicly contest it. They don't protest. Um, they grumble and they may not be entirely convinced uh, of the legitimacy of those who rule but they're willing to tolerate and even applaud uh, those who rule over them. They like their unfreedom. Professor Keen, you make two interesting points while describing the characteristics of new despotism. And you say that new despotism is not monocausal, that it is a phenomenon that arises from the confluence of a multitude of factors. And secondly, you say that no despotism is fully despotic. What do you mean by this? Well, uh, the impression that journalists and diplomats and elected representatives and government officials in the West sometimes give that these are regimes that are under the rule of the thumb, uh, that there is a widespread fear, uh, that they are autocratic, uh, that they boss and bully their population, um, and that this can't last. I think that picture, this book contests, uh, because I think it's deeply uh, mistaken. One of the striking things about these new despotisms is that there is public resistance to power. And it happens um, more and more on the internet. Uh, 
you can think of these new despotisms as harnessing our unfinished digital communications revolution that began in the 1950s and 60s. Um, you can think of them as experiments in the arts of using the internet to control the internet. Well, they do this um, immensely successfully in Iran um, and uh, China who share uh, details about how best to control the internet. What you see is that the authorities are prepared to allow parts of the population to vent um, against injustices um, and allowing those outbursts, what I call digital mutinies, uh, allows them to spot pockets of resistance and therefore they can pay better attention to controlling the sources of that uh, disaffection. Now, um, it is a striking and paradoxical fact that these new despotisms are earthquake proof. I mean, even when, as we saw in the past 12 months, a major uprising take place in Belarus, these regimes have an amazing capacity, an astonishing capacity to, to regain control, that the rulers learn the arts of manipulation and pacification of populations. So um, every day in China, yes, there is some or other digital mutiny, you know, some local protest online, on Weibo, uh, through WeChat, um, about some injustices, a corrupt official, uh, uh, food prices or lockdowns, uh, protests against this. But um, from, a, from above, efforts by uh, the ruling government officials uh, to actually address these issues and uh, to control them, to prevent major outbreaks. Professor Keen, you raise a number of interesting points. You talk about digital mutiny and uh, how new despots are deft in controlling and managing uh, communicative technologies. We shall come to that in a moment. Let me draw your attention to a point that you make which is very intriguing in my view. You draw a connection between hyperconsumption, hyperconsumerism, and hedonism on the one hand, and new despotism on the other. And you say that these two phenomena, hyperconsumerism and hedonism, actually are the bedrock of despotism. Could you explain what you mean by this? Yes, one of the striking features uh, that I uncovered in my fieldwork in many of these countries when preparing this book, one of the striking features is that in summertime, if you visit Nur Sultan in Kazakhstan, or if you visit Budapest uh, in Hungary, you will find lovers strolling hand in hand. You will find people sitting in cafes and restaurants, at least before COVID-19. Uh, and you will find that there's a well-dressed middle class um, and when you dig deeper, you find that there is Black Friday in Russia. Um, 
um, emulated in the United States. There is Harajomei in Iran. There's Singles Day in China. These are shopping sprees uh, with discounts. Um, this uh, emphasis on consumption, uh, on pleasure, uh, on happiness is one of the marks of these regimes. They fear being seen as are ruled by the fist. They have a velvet fist. They're hard government in soft velvet form. And the um, emphasis on uh, consumption, on holidays, uh, on um, acquiring an automobile, living a middle-class lifestyle is something that is uh, a very important feature of these regimes. They're not exactly Aldous Huxley's uh, dystopia, where people are drugged out and happy in their uh, unfreedom. That's overdoing it. But they're not George Orwell's 1984, where there's a kind of proletarian austerity uh, in the way people dress and where uh, consumer goods are in relatively short supply. These are regimes that try to deliver the goods uh, that try to uh, maximize comfort of those they rule. Uh, and in that way, they, the rulers expect to win the support. Uh, isn't of, it also uh, true those... that not everyone can participate in cons conspicuous consumption? Not everyone can pursue a life of hedonism as much as they would want to because they do not have the resources. Now, if you look at a country like India, there are millions living on the periphery who do not have any chance, not in this lifetime, it seems, to access the things that the middle class enjoys. So the phenomenon that you're talking about, how fair is it to generalize it to the entire system given the disparities in wealth and income well um you are right that it shouldn't uh, the point should not be overdone um it's also important to add that there are ecological consequences to this con consumerism uh there is a definitely one of the the limits of these new despotisms are to do with ecology to do with the, the destruction of the of the of the biomes in which you know people dwell in these despotisms but important is to see that there are other methods of ruling um, rule through law is a very important feature of these regimes look at the way that beijing is slowly um colonizing hong kong it does it by emphasizing the importance of observing the national security, the new national security law. Um, of course, uh, these regimes as well try to hide away violence. They camouflage uh, violence. You know, much of the violence, the kidnapping, the disappearances that happen are done by unidentified thugs, as uh, official media uh, call them. Right, but um, you make another point, Professor Keane, uh, which to me is very striking. You say new despotisms are police states with a difference. Yes. You say they do not 
operate through denial and repression like totalitarian regimes of the past. Instead, they bewitch and beguile their subjects. In fact, you go so far as to say that their engagement with violence is calibrated, and you call it calibrated coercion. This, to me, is an interesting point. How does it work? Well, that phrase, calibrated coercion, comes from a, uh, a Singaporean scholar uh, describing uh, the way things work in Singapore, which is um, uh, to be considered, I think, as the most perfect of despotisms. Um, uh, there are elections, there is uh, plenty of uh, talk of rule of law, uh, there is a big middle class, uh, there is an emphasis on hedonism. We've talked about these factors, but there's also um, forms of violence that are targeted at uh, dissenters. There is a Chinese expression uh, that applies to these uh, despotisms, which is uh, that there are times when you have to kill a chicken to scare the monkeys. Um, sometimes it goes wrong. Jamal Khashoggi mm -hmm. was murdered in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Uh, but the whole operation of disappearing his body stands uh, for me, and I say in the book at some length, it stands as a symbol of um, the calibrated coercion of, of these regimes. We come back to the point that those who rule these new despotisms are skittish. You know, they are anxious about loss of uh, popular support. And they therefore experiment with a whole toolbox of mechanisms for persuading the population that they're, they're, they are a good form of government, that they are doing a good job, that they are protecting people against um, outside uh, enemies, and that in general people's lives are on, um, uh, are on uh, the make, are, are being improved. Hiding violence away rather than displaying it openly as the Nazis uh, did, as old-fashioned dictatorships did, like Robert Mugabe's in Zimbabwe. Hiding violence away is a very important feature of these new despotisms. That makes them even more disturbing. Another important point you raised, Professor Keane, uh, concerns digital mutinies. A minute ago, you said that new despots are mindful about digital mutinies. They monitor them carefully, and they manage them skillfully. But at the same time, in your book, you say that we live in an age of communicative abundance. And this phenomenon of communicative abundance advances the agenda of new despotism. This is a paradox, is it not? Yes, let's think of it like this. Um, the old um, dictatorships, tyrannies, and totalitarian regimes of the 20th century sprang up in the era of the newspaper, uh, of radio, um, mass broadcasting. Mussolini was one of the first um, out of the blocks to realize that 
radio could be a tool of mass manipulation, later television and cinema. Um, those regimes, those forms of power belong to that communications era. I use the term communicative abundance. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's designed to get at the way in which this unfinished digital network communications revolution is having transformative effects. We know that on our everyday lives, on our bodily centers. It's the first uh, communications revolution recorded ever that combines text, sound, and image. Uh, it makes, uh, it breaks down time-space barriers. We couldn't have this conversation without um, this revolution. And in general, um, there are huge increases in flows of information or communication, hence communicative abundance. These regimes uh, very often practice state-of-the-art methods in uh, regulating uh, digital network communications. And once again, they, they do so um, in a contradictory way. Uh, yes, they um, set up, for example, online public forums. Uh, they use online public opinion polling. They try to gauge how their subjects are feeling and thinking about various matters. So, and they do, uh, paradoxically, allow for mutinies, you know, local uprisings. Um, that express um, uh, opposition to current government policies. At the moment, um, and in recent days, there has been such a digital uprising in and around Xi'an, this very large city that has been locked down where there is a shortage of commodities and people are protesting online. That's um, a chronic feature of these despotisms. But the other side, of the equation is that these despotisms master the arts of surveillance, of facial recognition technology, of um, taking down uh, web platforms that are considered to be anti-government. Um, they are violations of uh, the principles of freedom of assembly and freedom of communication and free flows of information. This is, this is the dialectic, if you like, that, that grips these uh, regimes which in this sense are different than early 20th century totalitarianisms and dictatorships. And they are different because this communications revolution allows easy copying and easy circulation at very low cost of scandalous information. You know, if there is a local incident involving, let's say a traffic policeman who bullies a motorist, that can be filmed, that then goes viral in China or Russia or Kazakhstan or Vietnam or Turkey or Hungary. And uh, suddenly millions of people know about it and the pressure is on those skittish rulers to do right. something about, to but, remedy the injustice. But then are we downplaying the power of new technologies? I, I take your point that uh, newer forms of surveillance, uh, new uh, technologies such as face recognition and so on have empowered regimes across the world. But the same new technologies have also empowered ordinary folks. And I have in mind the Me Too movement here in the United States and elsewhere, which was uh, 
albeit limited in its impact, still quite significant in that it brought down some very big names in media, cinema, uh, government, and so on and so forth. So what I'm trying to ask you is, are we assuming that new despots will continue to skillfully manage the uh, cyberspace and always come on top? Might it not be that lay folks could skillfully use these technologies to organize and revolt? We don't have a crystal ball and it should not be uh, presumed, your warning is correct, Professor Rao, it should not be presumed that these are Gibraltar rock solid regimes that have um, an indefinite durability, that they will last uh, forever. No regime of power ever does. But um, it should be remembered, we should add, that these are regimes that have very large corporations operating within them that are um, champions of digital network communications. Think of the Chinese giants, Alibaba or Tencent. They are the Googles and the uh, Facebooks of China. They are heavily regulated, as we know. Um, they do indeed uh, extract information from uh, people in these regimes, just as Facebook and Google do. There's a kind of surveillance capitalism, as a Harvard economist, Shoshana Zuboff, has said. Um, and though those um, political economy forces help to explain the stability of the, these regimes. Yes, um, it should not be ruled out that a that social movements that civil society initiatives flourish under despotic conditions we saw that happening in hong kong uh in the recent uh past and we saw a major digital uprising for example in uh, belarus uh to repeat those who rule are scared of those resistances of hashtag me too or black lives matter type protests so those do possibilities do exist is what you're saying they do and um not to be ruled out and it's another reason for using the word despotism is the moment where there is a, a violent crackdown of resistance that right. happened famously for example in 2009 in iran where, by the way, you may not know, but um, there was uh, 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 a fake election, a fake election result, um, a movement, the green movement developed, it was very digital. Um, the government, uh, the Iranian government cracked down, there were many arrests, um, and I and uh, Richard Rorty, um, who's sadly no longer with us, a famous American philosopher, and Jürgen Habermas, Germany's most prominent public intellectual, the three of us were named in the opening trial uh, that the state inflicted on journalists and intellectuals and others. They named us as conspirators. We were described as um, 
as uh, MI5, MI6 and CIA agents. Well, I still haven't received my paycheck uh, from any of these organizations, but I can tell you that that, that dynamic where there is that digital, uh, that possibility of digital mutinies um, and mutinies that are met with violence, with open violence, as in Belarus, as in uh, Hong Kong, as in Iran, they also happen. The puzzle is, how is it that people then go quiet and the regime uh, continues? They have, as I say, a kind of earthquake-proof quality to them. And we have to understand that. And one last thing, uh, one of the key reasons um, the viewers should be aware is that these regimes have a kind of democratic quality to them. They practice elections. Uh, rulers do allow outbursts. There is a public opinion polling, etc. But it's a kind of fake democracy. It's a kind of phantom democracy, as I call it. And not to be underestimated is the way that, for example, China and Russia, um, uh, Hungary, and other regimes say that their form of democracy is actually superior to that of the American liberal democratic kind. It's I could come to that in a moment. Yeah. But let me now turn to a point that you make, which I think is very important. And this concerns the ambivalent relationship between new despotism and the law. You argue that new despotisms are, as you call it, a mishmash of legality and lawlessness. You say that new despots prefer to operate through organized lawlessness. So they have the veneer of law. They have the uh, form, but the substance is lacking. Two questions arise. Number one, how does this system work and how does it uh, attain legitimacy given that it's hollow inside? And secondly, again, this might call for some speculation, but do you see anything on the horizon that might make you think that this arrangement where you pay obeisance to the law but continue to uh, foster and pursue illegality, that this will not go on for a long time? Mm -hmm. um, two really important questions. I'm not sure that um, we have time to talk about them in detail, but first, uh, all of these despotisms have beautiful constitutions. Um, they're flawless, impeccable. They specify civil and political rights, social entitlements, um, and speak of the rule of law in various languages and so on. Um, the reality is that the court system um, is in the pocket of those who rule. The court system is in fact part of the ruling apparatus. Um, independent judges, um, uh, the, the independent courts are dubbed Erdoğan in Turkey speaks in this way as juristocracy. And the, 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 the argument is, you know, we are a government for the people. 
and we rule on behalf of the people. Uh, we protect the people, and the people should not be bossed and bullied by you know, some unelected independent uh, court. Uh, they're juristocrats. So um, there is this strange um, tension between beautiful constitutions and the reality in which rule of law, you know, the principle that nobody is above the law, is violated. Um, there are all those who govern at all levels in the system are above the law. Um, yes, there are uh, corruption scandals, and yes, bodies like the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection in China, it's a party apparatus, go hunting for those who uh, flout the law openly. But when it comes to the court system and independent subjects who are complaining against the authorities, they stand almost no chance of winning and they actually stand a very high chance of being arrested and, uh, uh, and imprisoned. So um, this, um, this is a paradox. They seem to be systems in which there is um, law and respect for law, but there is a systematic via daily violation of laws. This is the organized lawlessness of which the book speaks. One thing that I would like to point out, uh, since you mentioned the Central Committee on Discipline Inspection, which is a party uh, organization uh, in China whose mandate is to control corruption ostensibly, it's important to note that it operates virtually independently of the justice system. It is yes. not answerable to the justice system. Now, yes. that be, uh, be that as it may, we go on to another very interesting point you make in the book, and that concerns how new despotism keeps total control, almost total control, on the public discourse. And you point out that there are two strategies that new despots use, and they are gaslighting and uh, brainwashing. And you say that most people just bellyache about the system, they complain endlessly, and don't do anything. Aren't you, some might say, assuming that people are zombies, why would they acquiesce when they see that the system is not functioning as it's supposed to? Yeah, I don't see um, uh, at all in this book um, uh, the subjects of these despotisms as zombies. I think that's uh, no, you don't. But I mentioned yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but it's not, I think, helpful to to you know explain things in in uh, that way that people are simply idiots and and uh, they're easily hoodwinked. Um, the 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 point is that. Um, these are regimes uh, in whose rulers find public opinion a curse. They depend upon it. They know that um, having public support is vital for the preservation and durability of the regime. Um, they curse it. They fear it. And they try to manipulate it. And the question is, how do they do it? One of the points made in this book is that these despotisms put on 
those who rule, put on quite a show. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of circus um, in which there's something for everything. Striking is the way uh, Viktor Orban, the ruler of Hungary, who showed that you can turn a power-sharing democracy into a despotism in 10 years, uh, has said several times that we don't need ideology. That is, um, fascist regimes had a big grand ideology of the way the world is. These despotisms, those who rule them, um, come dressed in a coat of many colors. Um, th they, they, for example, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, can uh, and does present himself on a Monday as a socialist who's for common prosperity. On a Tuesday, he talks about the importance of market development and economic growth. On a Wednesday, he gives um, uh, a press conference in which he talks about ecological civilization as if his talk is written by Greenpeace International. Um, on, on which day? Thursday, He's for democracy and talks about the superiority of people's democracy uh, in, uh, in China compared with the West. Um, and on Friday, you know, he can be seen on a bicycle with his daughter or he can be seen um, visiting uh, a local bun shop uh, in a scripted, um, it seems, unrehearsed visit. Right. The point is that those who rule do so through, um, they try to win public opinion through a whole variety of techniques, but one of them is that they put on a show. It's as if there is a permanent election campaign going on in these despotisms. That point is well taken, Professor Keane. Uh, indeed, uh, new despots are masters of rhetoric. They keep the rhetoric right and uh, they try to appear to be all things to all people. Yes. Yet, this still begs the question, why do people acquiesce in this phenomenon and not see through it? Uh, people submit. They give themselves to the regime um, for a whole variety of reasons. They do so because they feel that the disorder of the past or a future disorder if the regime were dislodged is unacceptable. They feel that their lives are more comfortable than they were, you know, 30 years ago, that there has been material improvement. They feel that there is education and some kind of healthcare system that protects, you know, their elderly um, uh, relatives and themselves. Um, they are fear that if they step out of line, they will suffer. They will be arrested, asked to come for a cup of tea, put through the court system and imprisoned. They also know that um, they can manipulate the system through connections. Connections are a very important part of these despotisms. There's a wonderful um, Iranian film by Mohammad Rusolov called Man of Integrity uh, uh, several years ago that, that captures this very well. I mean, if you want to get something done in these regimes, if you want to get your driver's license renewed or get a passport or um, get your child access to a school, you typically 
uh, do so uh, not through some formal bureaucratic process. You do it through connections, through someone that you know. Everybody is connected ultimately to everybody else. There is a top-down to the bottom system of what is called clientelism or patronage. Guangxi is the Chinese uh, word. Blood is the Arabic word. Uh, uh, no, sorry, blood is, I'm confused by it. Blood is the Russian word and wasta is the Arabic word to describe a kind of system in which everybody uh, is connected to everybody else. And as I say in the book, there's a kind of soiled solidarity. I mean, everybody is kind of corrupted by the system. But the system survives because you can get things done um, uh, through connections, even though ultimately you're powerless in the whole uh, uh, in the whole order of things. So it's a variety of mechanisms that uh, lead people rationally to submit to power and to fear what would happen if there was a regime change. Uh, they fear um, civil war. They fear um looking out on actually existing democracies they fear that their countries will become like that that feeling is very widespread for example in china who would want an american type system of disorder and contested elections and violence in everyday life say uh chinese critics who would want this when we have actually a good deal of we have a good deal of harmony and order and people's lives are not that bad and they're certainly better than they were during the cultural revolution which brings me to an important point you discuss concerning the relationship between despotism and democracy you say new despotism battens on thrives on support from advanced democracies like the United States, United Kingdom, countries in Western Europe, and so on. Why would countries ostensibly committed to democracy and democratic ethos work so closely with and almost covertly support new despotism? Yes, it's a critical question, and um, here uh, I'd like to go back for, um, for our American viewers to a point that was made by a Frenchman who came to the United States in 1831, 1832, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. Mm -hmm. He wrote, uh, ultimately, uh, one of the great classics of um, democracy, uh, thinking about democracy, called Democracy in America, where he warns that the main fear that Americans should have is the growth of despotism inside uh, their countries. And they should also fear the way that democracies collaborate with despotisms. Well, the book details uh, numerous examples of this cross-border cooperation. You know, France does um, billion euro uh, arms deals with Saudi Arabia. The United States sells um, huge quantities of weapons to the United Arab Emirates. Um, KFC operates in Russia and Uzbekistan. Um, Google's um, Absha app 
you know, is used in Saudi and it's used by the authorities to track women. I mean, these are one last example, you know, the black cabs of London, the firm that produces these cabs is a Chinese owned corporation. So, you know, the book tries to, to show that we should stop thinking in terms of Biden's autocracy versus democracy or, or despotism versus democracy. There's an entanglement in the real world between right. actually existing democracies and these uh, despotisms. And one last point, if I may, right. it is that um, inside democracies, disturbingly, I can see despotic trends. Um, you know, the militarization of policing that's going on, um, the way that um, digital giants, conglomerates, um, such as the American tech uh, uh, companies are, you know, engaging in a kind of extraction of resources and information from people and people conform to this. This is a kind of voluntary servitude. Um, and the, the flourishing of, um, of government controls during this COVID-19 plague um, carried out by democracies, all of that ought to disturb us. And what I try to do in this book is to get readers thinking about the way that we're not living in a period where there are pure democracies that are sort of given, you know, the grace of God on the one hand and awful um, uh, despotisms that we should fear. There is a kind of actual entanglement and there are disturbing trends inside actually existing democracies, which, by the way, are applauded by intellectuals and journalists in the despotisms. Which brings they me point to an important yes. question, uh, Professor Keane, to the extent that there are no pure democracies and pure despotisms, that to the extent that they lie along a continuum, as you point out yes. in your book, are you suggesting that new despotism is perhaps the future direction of most democracies, if they're not careful? Well, in your opening, uh, Professor Rao, you uh, very neatly, and I would say scarily summarized uh, the trends that um, are gripping actually existing power sharing uh, democracies, what I call monetary democracies the United States, um, Germany, all of the European Union states and others, South Africa, India, about which I've recently published uh, a book with uh, an Indian colleague. I mean, there are decadent trends in these democracies. And um, this book is, um, is a wake up call. Uh, it is um, an early warning detector uh, if you like, uh, that tries to arouse um, readers' uh, interest and concern in the possibility that these despotisms will inherit the 21st century. We know from uh, history, I wrote a history of democracy. It's a thousand pages. Um, uh, please, readers, don't go out and, and, and buy it. It's, it's much too long. But uh, one thing it one point it makes is that the history of democracy that goes back be earlier than the Greeks 
is a history of the periodic um, collapse or what is called democide of democracies, you know, where democracies commit, commit, um, commit a kind of suicide, they destroy themselves, or they are destroyed, for example, by military force or inside uh, corruption. That right. possibility should not be ruled out. And this book is an account of the alternative to power sharing democracy. It's also an account of why democracy it remains a universal ideal, why it's a good thing compared with these uh, new despotisms. In the limited time we have left, uh, let me ask you one very important question. As an antidote to new despotism, you posit the concept of monetary democracy. What do you mean by that? Well, um, it is a strange mouthful uh, to describe what I think has been going on for a generation in the world of actually existing democracy, where democracy has come to mean, it never happened before in its history, has come to mean nothing less than free and fair elections, something much more, and that something much more is the permanent public scrutiny and accountability of those who exercise power, whether in the field of, uh, let's say, business, or in the field of government or in daily life. Um, there are many, many institutions that monitor power that never existed before in the history of uh, democracy. Um, accountability mechanisms, um, you know, human rights uh, networks, um, future generations commissions, participatory budgeting, um, uh, the environmental movement is full of these um, innovations, all of which have in common um, the scrutiny, you know, keeping eyes on those who exercise power because of the dangers of the abuse of power. And what I say in this book is that perhaps, probably, the great weakness of the new despotisms is, the sh is that these public monitoring bodies independent courts, independent parliaments, independent NGOs, um, uh, whose job is to, to uh, be watchdogs against abuse of power, they're in short supply. And it follows from that, I try to say in the book, that the most effective antidote against um, the new despotisms is the protection and the nurturing of a whole array of mechanisms that citizens and representatives can, can uh, build and exercise for scrutinizing power, for preventing the abuse of power. Because after all, what is democracy? Democracy, uh, said very simply, is the belief that people are good enough to govern themselves that they can choose their representatives, that they are equals. And it follows from that, that those who abuse power, who boss and bully and manipulate others, are engaging in anti-democratic behavior. These new despotisms are full of that um, manipulation and that bossing and that subjugation of people. Very well. Um, Let me end this interview by asking you two quick rel related questions. You say that 
one way of countering new despotism is for subjects to withhold their support to these regimes. What in concrete terms do you think lay folks, doctors, teachers, nurses, accountants, everyday folks, what can they do to counter new despotism? Well, inside actually existing democracies, you can do it in uh, many thousands of different ways. You know, small initiatives matter. Um, uh, going to a local public meeting, taking an interest in public affairs, um, reporting uh, men who are abusive of women, um, violations of a local biosphere, you know, setting up a group to, to publicize, um, let's say, the destruction of some local species. I mean, democracy feeds upon those um, local initiatives, those small-scale uh, efforts of citizens. Um, it also feeds upon bigger things. You know, making sure elections are uncorrupted by money and manipulation of uh, votes, making sure that um, elected representatives, uh, your elected representative, um, that you keep on their backs, that you tread on their toes, that they do their job uh, and do not lie and uh, spread nonsense, for example. I mean, um, it's these larger and smaller initiatives of, of citizens that can actually breathe new life into democracies. Um, if you think that all of this is um, pie in the sky or all of this doesn't really matter, then I urge readers to read this book because you will see what the alternative is. Would you like to live uh, in a despotism? Would you like to be powerless? Would you like uh, your lives um, to be uh, as if, you know, dangling um, uh, like puppets on a string? Um, are you prepared to allow uh, uh, people to rule you and to act corruptly and to abuse their power over you? That, I think, is the central question that runs through this book. Your point is well taken, Professor Keane, but some here in the United States might wonder whether we Americans should be concerned about new despotism. We have a robust democracy, albeit frayed around the edges. Our institutions are working well. We do not face the kind of challenges that you've spoken about in the book and in this interview. What would you say to our viewers about why they should take this whole argument about new despotism seriously? Yes, I think for two reasons. Uh, one is that at home, um, in the United States, but in other democracies, there are some worrying trends. Um, you know, a major political party, um, some of whose members um, a third of whose members um, think that the use of violence is okay in politics. Um, uh, a growing inequality 
social inequality that produces a lot of resentment is a feature of practically every actually existing democracy. And if democracy is about equalization of life chances, then this 40-year growth uh, of a widening gap between rich and poor is anti-democratic. So there are lots of uh, worrying trends inside democracies. These are not paradises on earth. But the other reason has to do with the emergence of powers. And I'm thinking above all of Russia and China um, that are despotic and are clearly um, hunting packs and are clearly out to um, uh, outflank and maneuver the United States and other democracies. This is one of the great uh, geopolitical issues of our time. Uh, I happen to think, as I say in the book, that war is no solution to this problem. War would make everything much worse and it would have catastrophic consequences. The most important uh, thing that democracies can do uh, is for people to clean up uh, the dirty stables of democracy, uh, to bring about um, uh, a system in which there is greater social equality, where there is dignity, uh, where there is rule of law and where um, corruption is not cool. And for that, you know, there needs to be um, a strengthening and defense of watchdog barking dog institutions that can prevent abuses of power. So I'd say those two things are in a way um, some small recommendations that, that come from my book. Professor Keane, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights with us. We appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. Professor Rao, thank you very much. And I wish you all the best with your uh, series. Uh, it's been an honor and uh, a great pleasure to be with you. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. Next week, I will introduce you to a new book by Dr. Anna Schaffner, Professor of Cultural History at the University of Kent in the United Kingdom. Dr. Schaffner's book, The Art of Self-Improvement, 10 Timeless Truths, was published by Yale University Press last year. It explores our obsession with self-improvement and its consequences not only for our personal lives, but also for how we relate to others and the collective choices we make. Join us next time for another exciting discussion with Dr. Schaffner. Until then, thank you for watching. I am Badrinath Rao, your host. Stay safe and goodbye.